Let our hearts be prepared to hear the word of the Lord. It'll be coming to us from 1 Peter. Though our passage for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, verses 13 through 16, I'm going to read the whole of the chapter just to kind of set it in context and also understand of some of the references that Peter is making in our portion, in our portion that we will cover here this morning. So please pay careful attention to the reading of God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things to which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed or that be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of, the perish- not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding God, a word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Indeed, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord shall abide forever. Blessed be our God. Let us pray, asking his blessing now. Heavenly Father, Lord, may you be here with us, indeed, as we know you are. May we, with eyes of faith, look upon Christ. May we, with ears of understanding, discern that which is being said, that which applies to us very specifically, and to each one of us uniquely. Lord, meet us where we are at. Whether we struggle with unbelief or whether we are pressing on, Lord, whether we are in prosperity or feeling ourselves having been plundered by the world. Lord, be with us now for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hope is a good word. Everybody likes the word hope. It's an intimate word. What do you think of when you hear the word hope? Perhaps you think of relief from stress or suffering. If only you can make it through, if only you can press on, you'll have reprieve on the other side. Perhaps perhaps it expresses your desire. Oh, I sure hope I get that job, or I sure hope I get that promotion. What about the word holy? Perhaps we think of the word holy as we as Christians have been raised and trained to think and to understand rightfully that which is set apart, sacred, consecrated unto God. Sometimes we think of holy as, ah, no, them, yeah, they're, they're pretty holy, aren't they? Holier than thou. God thinks of these words very much so. He thinks highly of these words, so to speak, So much so that he sent his only begotten son into the world to demonstrate what it means to have hope and to be holy. And moreover, not only demonstrating, but giving us that hope and making us holy. He's redeemed his people to have both hope and holiness. Here in verse 13, we read hope. It's an imperative. Let's hear it again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an imperative. It means it's a command. This is the first imperative of 1 Peter. Peter's commanding the redeemed people of God to live by hope. With hope, the saints are called, we are called, to look ahead to the coming of Christ when the grace of God will be manifested, the kingdom of God manifested before their very eyes, before our very eyes, in a way that has not been demonstrated yet before, has not been seen fully before. This manifestation of the kingdom, of God's grace and his dwelling with his people, will be so pure and so rich. We've never beheld such a thing, yet we have that hope placed within us. So not yet witnessed, 
does that mean that this revelation is new? That we have new revelation? Not quite. We know God has revealed himself both in nature. We sang of that, the the hymn, This is My Father's World. The hymn writer is speaking of viewing the beauty of God in his creation. You see the snow falling. How lovely is that? Great, we grow tired of it at times. And then when the sun comes and melts it and the warm summer days, we rejoice. This is our Father's world. But moreover, he's given us scripture to rightly interpret the world, the nature in which he's made. Because nature's not enough to show salvation, we need his word to know this. He's revealed to us what we must know about him and subsequently his kingdom. I'm a Presbyterian, so I love the Westminster Larger Catechism. That goes without saying. And the Larger Catechism, in its second question, asks this. How doth it appear that there is a God? Answer, the very light of nature and man, the works of God, declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal unto men for their salvation. We would affirm that there's no new revelation outside of what's been given by God already. So what does Peter mean here? What does Peter mean here at the coming, coming revelation in verse 13? I'm going to illustrate a bit. When my wife and I were on a trip down to Alabama where my family roots are, we were spending Lord's Day worship at First Presbyterian Church, PCA, in Jasper, Alabama. And prior to the service, the minister told us of his, uh, a story about his examination at Presbytery to become a minister. And he was asked the question, has revelation ceased? He answered, no. And as you can imagine, there was a murmur, raised eyebrows. They asked a clarifying question. Okay, what do you mean by that? You have to explain yourself here. What do you mean? And he said, well, when Jesus Christ returns, I believe it will be quite a revelation. And of course, laughter erupted. Legan Duncan didn't find it so funny, and he was a presiding moderator. If you don't know who Legan Duncan is, he's a prominent Presbyterian theologian and quite a talented historian and theologian, but he was not impressed by this answer, and he responded with, Mr. Pierce, now is not a time for levity. Now, as funny as that was, and I wish I could have seen it been a fly on the wall, there was something true in Mr. Pierce's answer. It's not in the same way that God has revealed himself through nature and scripture, but he will reveal the grace that he has for us in such a full way when Christ descends upon the clouds, as he has promised to do. He will make his kingdom fully manifest and fully known before our very eyes. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more hardship, no more poverty. In this part of verse 13, declaring the hope of that coming revelation of Christ Jesus when he returns, that grace that will be bestowed upon us, it's sandwiched between Peter addressing the saints as children in verse 14 
in how they are to conduct themselves in the very beginning of verse 13. This is no accident that he has this part split with hope. Because what do children have? As we are addressed here in verse 14, what do children have that jaded, cynical, bruised, and battered adults don't? Children have hope. They have hope. And they have hope despite what's going on around them. Despite their circumstances, they have hope. And we admire our children when they set their hopes on things. And how doggedly they hold to it. How unshakable they are in it. And as holy children, we too must have hope at this coming grace, this revelation of Christ when he comes again. But while we wait... While we are filled with hope, how are we to live? How are we to live? Peter calls the recipient, as I said in his letter, children in verse 14. Let me refresh us here and read that. And it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Not only are they children, they're obedient children. So what does it mean to be a child here? Before we understand obedience, what does it mean to be a child of God? To be addressed as children and truly take that to ourselves. Well, we know that we have been adopted. Dear Christian, do you know you have been adopted by God? He's called that which was not his, was his enemy and made it his own, made us his own. Galatians 4, Ephesians 1 tells us this. And we are no longer children of disobedience. Colossians 3 tells us. And we have now every spiritual blessing that is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Adoption and election are closely tied doctrines in the Christian faith. This is how we are made children. Peter ties these together quite nicely. And beginning in verse 13, he starts with, therefore. And when we see therefore, perhaps you know this, we ask, what is that therefore? Therefore. Well, the preceding verses, the opening verses of the book tells us, it says that we are elect in verse 1 to those who are elect, exiles. And it says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus for the sprinkling with his blood. Verse 2 begins with foreknowledge of God, which has no beginning. God's knowledge does not have a beginning. It, is, it always is. And he's elected his children, his people, to be his saints. And in light of the wonderful deeds of salvation brought forth, in Christ, by the Father, applied by the Spirit, to which, as it says, the angels long to look. The children of God now relate to their Father differently, no longer as enemies, and they relate to each other differently. No longer as separated groups, but now together as one family. 
verse 14 says as, as children, as obedient children. This is connecting how children are to be obedient to verse 13. The children are to be obedient by preparing their minds for action and to be sober-minded, or in some translations saying self-controlled. Being Preparing our minds for action literally from, from the text reads, girding up the loins of our minds. Now let's look at these two descriptions briefly to better understand them. So what does it mean when I say girding up the loins of our minds? It's a strange idiom. It's figurative language. We don't really fully get that all the time. What does that mean to gird up the loins of your mind? What Peter's saying here isn't actually so strange. We all understand what it means to be prepared mentally for a fight. Prepared to face whatever, whatever opposition. And our, our English translations helpfully bring that out. Smoothing over this figurative language to make it clear. But to Peter's first audience, to the Christian's at the time, your brothers and sisters in the faith who came before you, they would have understood the idiom perfectly. And in some parts of the world, they still understand it, as men wear some sort of robe, some sort of gown. But wearing a robe makes things difficult. Try doing manual labor wearing a robe. Try running wearing a robe. Try fighting wearing a robe. They would have to tie their robe up in a manner in their belt to be prepared, to be mobile, to move. This would have been plain to them at the time. They knew they had to be mentally prepared for the spiritual warfare they faced. And this is no different for us today. Sure, our attire is a little different, but we get it about being prepared I'm not going to go work in my yard wearing this, right? I'm going to prepare. I'm not going to work on my car wearing this. You shouldn't go to places in public wearing pajamas. That's not being prepared. We understand what it means to don the attire for proper work. And we must be prepared mentally. Always wearing the right attire mentally to face the challenges that are before us. You do that by being sober-minded, self-controlled. That's straightforward. We get that one. If someone is not alert, whether it's by intoxication, being tired, being distracted, they can be made a victim very suddenly in an attack. The children of God are called. They're called to be holy to be prepared, to be sober in their thinking, not living by naive fantasies. Because we know the devil's bad, and we know he's out to get us. We know the world is a dreadful place with many snares, but do you know that your flesh is the biggest threat that you have? Do you know that your own heart is the biggest threat within you, towards you? Don't let your heart out of your sight. It will. It will come for you. The devil only puts before us the things that we, that we lust for. Power, money, sex. The world provides the opportunity. 
but it's our flesh that gives into this. We really aren't very different from Cain when God warned him in Genesis, saying, your sin is waiting outside the door. It's desires for you to take you, control it, overcome it, lest it does. Later on in 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 8, we're told that the devil prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, to devour those who are not prepared. These attacks to which Peter warns against, these temptations to the conformity of our former lusts and our former ignorance, they come in two different varieties. To the first audience, to the first generation of Christians in which Peter is referring to, you had groups together, Jews and Gentiles. These are worlds apart. There were the Jews, and then there was everybody else who were Gentiles. And the temptation for the Jews at the time was legalism. They had God's law. They're the chosen people. We have the oracles of God. Go back and read the Gospels. Look at the arrogance of the Pharisees. Look at Paul's own life, the way he speaks of it. In Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, blameless. And yes, the law of God is good. It reveals something about him, his holiness. But we take and weaponize the law to make us holier than everyone else in arrogance, not realizing that it's a gift. What about the Gentiles? This is the other side of the coin. Licentiousness, living lives that are rooted in sin, living lives, giving into your flesh, these cultic practices in which these people were called out of by the gospel of Jesus Christ were very sexual in nature. It was grotesque. And now these things, knowing that they are contrary, these former ignorances are seen for what they are. They're tiresome. Battles of the will and of the flesh. One commentator talks about the calling of the people away from their former ignorances like this. It says, it's affecting the trans- transformation of a person from the old idolatrous ways of, ways of life, from wasting time feeding the insatiable desires of pagan life to a life patterned after Christ, embodying the character of an holy God. And legalism is just as tiresome. Whether Jew or Gentile, the former ways to the Christian are now no longer appealing in the same way that they once were. They see them as contrary to the life that God has called them to. And they're no longer to walk in that way. They're adopted, elected, obedient children, holy, set apart. In verses 15 and 16, let's look at those again. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, sincere, or since his writing, since is written, 
You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter instructs the recipients of this letter, and he instructs you today, all of us here, to look to the standard of holiness in which we have. We have God as our standard. There's a wonderful quote from a Presbyterian theologian from about 100 years plus ago, W.G.T. Shedd, and he says that God's communicable attributes are those which are possessed in a finite degree, more or less, by men and angels. Such are wisdom, benevolence, holiness, justice, compassion, and truth. What Shedd is saying here is that God is our standard of holiness. We, being made in his image, going back to the very first man, Adam, our representative in the garden, we have God's traits in a small way, reflecting his goodness. Therefore, we are called to be godly in the truest sense of the word. We must be wise. We must be benevolent or showing kindness to others. We must be holy. We must be just. We must have compassion and live by truth. And Peter evokes the authority of what's called the Levitical Holiness Code. What that means when you read through Leviticus, and you're probably about there in your Bible reading, I encourage you, keep going, keep going. Get through numbers, especially. Keep going. It is rich. It is a blessing. But if you are in Leviticus, you've read a lot about do this, don't do that, and how that applied to the Levite priests. That's their holiness code. That's how they are to live. And he's, Peter, that is, is evoking this language, the authority of Scripture here. He's not making a suggestion. They have been called in holiness by the one who is holy, by the authority of the word. How else can they properly wait with hope in Christ at the coming grace, the revelation of Christ? Children of God, prior to their calling, lives lives completely contrary. We've seen this. The life Christ lived on their behalf was of perfect blessedness, perfect holiness. Christ lived under the law and earned. He merited our salvation for his people, we, his children. The gospel imperative here in verse 15, be holy. The command, yes, Christ has earned our salvation by his work. But we must now live in accordance with that. We must now live in light of that holiness in which we've been called by God too. They must live and we must live lives in holiness of Christ who showed us the Godhead. We must put away our former ignorances and look to the glory of which we possess now, but we will have all the more. You know you suffer. This is not Pollyanna Christianity. Everything's fine and dandy. You live lives of brokenness. I don't know you personally, 
But I know you in the sense that as my brothers and sisters sharing this bond that we have that you too suffer, I can't be the only one. I know you suffer and have hardship. We suffer against our former ignorances, our former lusts. We are seen by the world as a laughing stock, as fools to be pitied. And that pity's run out, if you haven't noticed. Now we're just fools to be hated. But Christ was crucified by people like that. People who inflict us now. But we too have raised our hands against him in our flesh, in our prior living, in our lives contrary to Christ. He was crucified to save those who crucified him. He was crucified to save us. And he was crucified to save those who inflict us now. He is calling people day by day around the world. He's bringing those who have lived a life contrary to him, who are tired and wearisome, facing down the barrel of their sin, trembling at the fear of the next day, seeing the grace and hope of Christ. He calls our children who are raised in the church, and may it be by his grace that they never know a day without him. But how else can we live but having hope and being holy? God has called us and he's given us a standard. So what does hope mean to you? Do you see how important hope is to our Christian faith? What about being holy? The story of redemption that God has crafted throughout history has culminated in the saving work of his son. Yet there is more to come. It is that we possess so much right now. But we will understand all the more later. But do you feel that tension in yourselves? Possessing, hoping, but suffering? Do you feel that tension in your life? Do you find it hard to focus when the darkness has closed in? When it feels like tunnel vision, darkening our eyes. Saints, I urge you, please, in the name of Jesus Christ, look to the light of hope that you have already. Set your hope fully on Christ. Let it shine all the brighter. What are you struggling with today? Is it your lawlessness? Threatening to snuff out the light of your life? You belong to Christ. Let your accuser know that. Is that you're just not sure that you can trust this one we've spoken of here today? Surrender and see that he is good. Leave your 
Master now and go to the one who his burden is light. His yoke is light. The one who will love you and caretake for you. If the sufferings you face threaten to choke out your life, your light, don't fear. Press on. Children, and I'm addressing all of you, not just the children in the room, child of God, child of God, you have a father who loves you. Child of God, you have an elder brother in Christ Jesus who has paved the way for you, and he's defended you. And by his spirit, he has taken your hand sweetly and tenderly, and he walks with you as you toddle on to glory. As you toddle with hope fully towards the coming grace, the revelation of Jesus Christ, children of the Most High God, have hope. Have hope and be holy. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we, don't, we don't know what to do all the time with such beauty of grace. Lord, we are truly in awe. We are struck. We are dumbfound. Lord, help us to look at the grace of Christ. Help us to set our hope fully. Help us to be holy. But Lord, we plead with you. Haste the day in which you come again. Please, may we see Christ descend upon the clouds. May we be called home to glory. Lord, may you ease our sufferings. But until then, Lord, please keep us holy. Keep us in your hand. Help us to know that you will never let us go. Lord, that you will never surrender us. Lord, help us to know that you've won the fight already. Help us to march on towards glory. We pray all this, asking in Christ's name. Amen.